Though Jesus taught many concepts when he spoke about the kingdom of heaven, it is clear there was one that was the most central, that of forgiveness. To drive the point home, he used two of his most famous parables, the two servants and the good Samaritan. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. Happy Easter, everyone. I wish I could say those words in all of your ears. I wish I could run around to every rooftop and shout it. Happy Easter, happy Easter. It's such a wonderful occasion that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and in, in line with that, I have two questions this week. Um, the first one I'll take is sort of related to Easter. And that is from Clay. He asks uh, one specific thing. He First of all, Clay and Julia have the, a similar question. Uh, Julia says, I can't seem to find your show notes or your blog. Your insights and research are incredible, and I would very much like to have reference, references and sources I can refer to, both for myself and for my students. Please point me in the right direction. Thank you so much for that, Julia. Um, and I will answer your question after I tell you Clay's question, which is similar. My question is, do you post, this is from Clay, do you post some of the resource material that you refer to in your podcast? One specific thing I'm looking for, and I'll talk about that in a moment. Um, so the answer is my blog is at gospeltoctrine.com. And uh, originally I posted every episode there, and really all that was posted was a link to SoundCloud where these episodes are hosted with the comment that I put, uh, that I buried in the MP3 file to begin with. Um, Lately, the vision that I've had is that I would take my written notes, they're handwritten, I don't do this on computer, uh, and scan them and put those on the page for each lesson as well. And I felt like I should do this for some time now. So now that two people have asked in the same week, I kind of think maybe that's confirmation to me that I should start doing it. It's just been... Uh, so I've got a stack of papers on my desk that I could scan in and put on the blog, and, and hopefully that you'll find those helpful. So I'll start doing that. Clay goes on, uh, one specific thing I'm looking for is the talk from President Nelson you referenced in the special episode on Holy Week, where you related a story from your mission about worshiping on the Sunday versus Saturday because of celebrating the resurrection. I can't seem to find that talk and would love to read it. Thank you again for your podcast is a blessing. Um, the The talk I was referring to, I've, I've tried many times to reconstruct what I was thinking on my mission. I, I remember learning this and I didn't remember exactly where I got it from. Um, and it's only recently that I've become certain that I was talking about a talk by then Elder Nelson in October from October 1993's conference, Constancy Amid Change. And in that lesson, he talks about the three creations. And as you may imagine, I was a missionary uh, without any internet or any, any electronic means at all of researching any of this stuff. And so as I was praying about it, we had an investigator. If, for those of you who missed the, the special episode on Holy Week or Easter episode last week, um, there was an investigator who was simultaneously being taught by the Seventh-day Adventists and by my companion and me. And I was trying to, and the, the word for 
Sabbath in Portuguese is, is the same as the word for Saturday. So I was trying to understand why this, this family should listen to us, what we said when we don't worship on Saturday. And the obvious answer is that uh, during, during the time of the first apostles, they began worshiping on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection, but I didn't understand why. And then I found this talk where Elder Nelson talks about the three creations, and he doesn't explicitly say he doesn't explicitly come to the conclusions that I drew, but this was my uh, own personal inspiration at the time, was that, uh, of course, those are uh, what I, I wanted to know why, and, and he calls, Elder Nelson calls the, the creation the paradisiacal creation, and then he calls the fall, he calls it the mortal creation, and he calls the resurrection or the atonement the immortal creation. And armed with that understanding that the, the atonement was an immortal creation, that was when I was able to understand how important it was, that, that it, was on, it was truly on the level of a new creation of all things, and uh, satisfy myself as to why it would have been so important to actually change the day on which we worship. Thank you so much for those questions. And um, like Clay and Julia, should you care to send in a question, uh, please do. The email address is gt at gospeltoctrine.com. A couple of interesting things happened this week. Um, all of you are aware of the fire that happened in Paris, the, the fire on the, the Cathedral of Notre Dame. And what, a, what an emotional experience that has been for many people. Both, of course, the, the alarm and the urgency of the fire itself and the idea that the, the cathedral could collapse, but then the relief and the gratitude that the building will stand and that it will be rebuilt and that the money has already been raised to fund that process. And I was reminded of Jesus is saying, in three days, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. Because the French people have so quickly resolved and begun the, the steps of raising that wonderful cathedral, that wonderful building again. And I, the, I just thought, I was contrasting and comparing those two statements. I just thought about the complications involved in raising and repairing a cathedral. It might take decades to do. But then I thought of the relative complexity of rebuilding a body. You know, John says that it was only later the disciples became aware that when Christ said, destroy this temple and in three days I will build it again, the Pharisees thought he was talking about the actual temple, Solomon's temple. And uh, the disciples understood later he was talking about the temple of his body. How long would it take modern science, everyone, all the king's horses and all the king's men, how long would it take them to repair a human body or to create a human body? The first time the Cathedral of Notre Dame was built, it took 200 years to build. We could build it faster now, but it wouldn't be done with the same ingenuity because we have better tools. But that, that cathedral will be built again. And the, the miracle that Jesus performed in raising himself from the dead was even more phenomenal, even more noteworthy, even more historical by an infinite margin. And I, I, 
I don't know why, but that, that phrase came into my head. Another notable thing for me that happened this week, um, and I, I'd want to mention this because just on a personal note, um, because this was a, a beloved movie for me when I was a child and it has more meaning for me now. Uh, here in Salt Lake, they had a 60th anniversary, it might have been nationwide, a 60th anniversary release of the movie Ben-Hur in theaters. And what a wonderful movie this is. It's a movie depicting perfectly the dilemma of an angry Jew during the time of the Roman occupation. And he's waiting for the physical deliverance that's been promised in the Hebrew scriptures. So he's, it's a, such a wonderful depiction of how uh, Jews would have felt as they wait for their Messiah. And it shows, for me as a kid, I kind of thought, you know, this movie is, it's a little simplistic, and when it talks about Jesus, the parts are a little preachy. And now watching it with new eyes, especially having studied recently the Old Testament and now studying the New Testament, I recognize that both the writers, both the writer of the original book and the screenwriters would have had to have an intense love for the Hebrew Scriptures and for the New Testament. because, And especially understanding Daniel chapter 7, um, knowing that the the Son of Man is pitted against the beasts that signify the governments of this world. And it's, this movie shows so perfectly the the way that the beast tramples upon people. And um, this the story isn't specifically focused on Christ until uh, the, until the main character makes the choice to seek revenge. But uh, it's so clear that to me it it moved me to tears even because it it's so clear how Christ can intervene in all of our lives in spite of the humble way in which he lived. And they just obviously they don't make movies like this. It the the subtitle or the way this movie was billed was a story of the Christ. That was the subtitle of the book, and so you wouldn't have a a movie that was for years in the theater the way this one was, and that won Academy eleven Academy Awards the way this one did if it were released today. Uh, so I recommend Ben Hur to you, and it has personal. It has a little personal significance to me. There's a, a dear family member who I would not normally associate with faith, the matters of faith, um, was somebody who was distanced from religion at an early age. And once we were watching this movie together, and, and it was the part, this is a minor spoiler, you can skip the next 30 seconds if you haven't seen the movie. I recommend seeing Ben-Hur. But there's a part where uh, Ben-Hur is enslaved on a Roman slave galley, and he's rowing. And my uh, family member was telling me, this is a, a lesson on faith. We were watching the movie, and he said, look at this one man's faith is about to save himself and another person when no one else can be saved because they don't have faith. And so he's, he is so strongly moved to, to row in a certain way and to defy his Roman captors that he's unchained before the, the ship is sunk in battle. And then he's able to save a Roman citizen and become uh, a great person in Rome. Ben-Hur is because of his faith. And um, so that just that one scene, it doesn't seem like a lesson on faith, was able to move a family member, not, not very religious one. And that has always stayed with me. And so this movie, to me, has personal meaning as well as spiritual meaning. Uh, I recommend Ben-Hur. So today we're going to start 
talking about our lesson. Uh, our lesson is on the 18th chapter of Matthew and on Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in the Book of Mormon in talking about this lesson. And the there are so many parallels between what we're learning today and in King Benjamin's discourse that I just figured I, I should begin there. Um, so the first thing that we want to talk about is the idea of the natural man. So we'll, we'll, we're in the book of Mosiah. Mosiah 3.19, you, you should, you may know the scripture well. Uh, For the natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever unless he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit and putteth off the natural man and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord and becometh as a child submissive, meek, humble, patient, full of love, willing to submit to all things which the Lord seeth fit to inflict upon him, even as a child doth submit to his father. Echoes of this verse are found throughout today's lesson and throughout the lessons that that Christ was teaching his disciples at this time. Um, But the main idea we're going to take at this moment is the natural man is an enemy to God. So we so King Benjamin describes what the natural man is like and then describes what it's like to be the opposite of that. In, uh, so that's Mosiah chapter 3. A little bit earlier in chapter 2, Mosiah talks about, starting in verse 17, another well-known verse, uh, Behold, I tell you these things, you may learn wisdom, that you may learn that when you are in the service of your fellow beings, you are only in the service of your God. And then he talks about how we should impart of our substance to those who beg. And in verse 20, I say unto you, my brethren, if you should render all the thanks and praise which your whole soul has power to possess to that God who has created you and has kept and preserved you and has caused that you should rejoice and has granted you that you should live in peace with one another, I say if you should serve him who has created you from the beginning and is preserving you from day to day by lending you breath that you may live and move and do according to your own will, and even supporting you from one moment to another. I say if you should serve him with all your whole souls, yet you would be unprofitable servants. So this idea of unprofitability and of servants is also going to come out. So it's, I wanted to tie that idea together with the idea of the natural man, as Jesus does, and as King Benjamin does. Uh, and so uh, I recommend, first of all, I recommend uh, Mosiah 3.19, I recommend Mosiah chapter 2, verses 17 through 25. And then in Mosiah chapter 4, after Mosiah is done talking, or, or, or when he takes a pause, the people have fallen to the earth, and he looks at them, this is Mosiah chapter 4, verse 2, they had viewed themselves in their own carnal state, even less than the dust of the earth, and they all cried aloud with one voice, saying, Oh, have mercy and apply the atoning blood of Christ, that we may receive forgiveness of our sins. So, um, the, the state of the natural man is the carnal state less than the dust of the earth. And this is mentioned a little earlier in Mosiah, or in King Benjamin's discourse, about how the dust of the earth is obedient to the, the commands of God, and yet the natural man is not. And so they're even less than the dust of the earth, which they never would have thought. So that takes us to uh, Matthew chapter 18, and we'll begin here with talking about first first thing Christ does, and if you remember, in Mosiah 3.19, he says, we should become as a little child. So the disciples come to Jesus, 
and they say, who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And the, the first thing that occurs to Jesus to do is to put a child in the middle of them. And there are different accounts in the different gospels of what he does here, but Matthew here is the most complete. Except you become converted and as little children, you shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. He's trying to tell them the same thing that Mosiah was teaching, that you're, the natural man that you are, the one that wants to be great, is an enemy to God. And if you want to put off the natural man, you need to become like this little child, submissive, meek. Uh, Verse 4 of Matthew 18, Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Now we're going to take a little bit of a a side note because Jesus Jesus goes off on on a slightly different topic and he says, Whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. So, now we're going to talk a little bit about how the preciousness, the value, the worth of souls in the eyes of God. And Jesus talks about these, these little children who believe in him and offend me. If you, if you look at the, the footnote there, cause to stumble. If, if a child believes in me and you cause him to stumble, cause her to stumble. In other words, if you take someone's faith away, it's better for you. And this is a terrible image. A millstone is a stone about the size of a, of a bus. Right, So it's not just a little rock that would weigh you down slightly. You would be pulled to the depths irresistibly, pulled to your death by drowning. It would be a horrible death. And Jesus is saying it would be better to suffer this terrible, horrible, violent death by drowning than to to take away the faith of a child. We're going to talk more about this idea in a little while. But let's, let's talk a little bit more about the preciousness of souls. Jesus goes on to say um, that this is uh, a teaching that we've already been exposed to, so we'll go over it quickly. But if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, we're in verse 8 now, cut them off, cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. Same, he says the same thing about an eye. It's better to be... It's better to approach life with one eye than having two eyes to go to hell. And so, just briefly, the idea is not that physically, obviously, this is not meant to be taken literally. And Jesus first used this sort of imagery when he was talking about lust. And so, the idea is, it's better to take away something we really love, but that's doing us spiritual harm these crutches that we rely on to walk through life, that we use to numb ourselves perhaps from the pains of existence, it's better to be deprived of something that brings us comfort and be able to follow the commandments of God than it is having that, that comfort, that addiction perhaps, or that resentment, that unforgiving nature to be cast into hell. To, to keep our own myopic visions of what life should be and what other people mean to God, to keep those throughout our lives and thus make ourselves feel better. It's better to cut those off, even though that excision might be very painful. Jesus goes on to say in verse 10, Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man is come to save 
that which was lost. How think ye, if a man have a hundred sheep, and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine, and goeth into the mountains, and seeketh that which has gone astray? And if it so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than of the ninety and nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And I just, I just want to say how amazing it is that Christ would teach this over and over. We have the scripture in, in John 3.16 that, that Jesus came into the world. God loved the world so much he gave his son. And then Jesus came into the world not to condemn them, but that through them we might be saved. And we'll talk more about this idea in a, in a couple of months when we discuss the atonement. But the truth is that the, the irony, the, the contradiction, the paradox in this lesson that Jesus is teaching is that, of course, he would leave his 90 and 9 and he rejoices more about one that's lost than over the 90 and 9 that aren't lost. But the truth is we're all lost. We're all the one. So there is no 90 and 9. There is only the one. That's the interesting part about this lesson for me, is that Jesus, even if it were one, I'm reminded of this uh, talk by Elder Renland in which he discusses the experience of a friend of theirs in South Africa who was missed in the passing of the sacrament. And then she, and so therefore the sacrament is provided for her individually after the meeting. And she's thinking, oh, how wonderful it is that they're doing this just for me. And then it sinks into her that Jesus did this just for me. And this is what Jesus is saying, is that I'm, I'm come to save every sheep that is lost. It is not the will of our Heavenly Father. And, and as he has spoken so, so connecting, in such a connected way about how his will is connected to that of the Father, Jesus is saying, it's not my will either, that one of these children should be lost. And so we would have done everything that we have done to save every child. And with that in mind now, let's go back to verse 6. And I want, I want to take a, a slightly different perspective on the next few verses. We're going to read one of them again, and then I want you to read them again on your own and think about it from this perspective. Whoso shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. I want you to imagine the way Jesus sees you. Jesus sees all of us as little children, and he calls he even calls his disciples that at times, and and Paul calls them that. When you read something like this, read, read the next few verses and read them from the perspective that Jesus, the little one he's talking about, is me. I think we, we read this and we think, yeah, who would offend a child and take away a child's belief? That would be a terrible thing. But I want you to read this now and think, if I were to take away, if I were to do anything to cause myself to stumble... What a horrible thing that would be. And, and you'll realize as you read this that it applies just as well, just as perfectly in that instance. God wants you to take care of your own spiritual health, as it were. He wants you to foster your own belief and nurture it, exactly like feeding and watering the tree or fertilizing and watering and pruning the tree of faith that Alma talks about. He wants you to care for this. And if you, are to, if you were to raise a stumbling block for yourself... It would be better for you to be drowned in the depths of the sea. You're a little child too. God cares about you as much as any of his other sheep. We're going to talk a little bit today about how to treat yourself well spiritually. And, uh, and so he goes on. So 
read those verses again and and uh, culminating in verse 14, it is not the will that one of these little ones should perish. And I think more than um, any of the lessons that I can remember in, that we've done recently in the last few weeks, it should come home to you in this lesson how much God truly loves you, you individually. He cares about you so much. And he's willing to do anything for you. He's willing to move heaven and earth that you might be saved. It is not his will that you should perish. Okay, now Jesus, and you know, it's interesting. um, Every time we talk about forgiveness, every time I've had a lesson in which um, forgiveness is the topic, the the question always comes up, yeah, but what about somebody who keeps taking advantage of you? Um, it's It's such an important question. And Jesus, before he even talks about forgiveness, which is the point of the lesson today, uh, Jesus talks about boundaries. That's the way we would put it in modern parlance. Uh, here's, here's an example of one person sinning against another. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. And he goes on to describe, if he doesn't hear you, then bring, then bring two or three, one or two other people so that two or three people are there seeing it. And if that doesn't work, then the whole church can know. And then if, the whole, if he doesn't hear the whole church, and by hear, it's the same meaning of the word hear that Jesus uses when he is talking about, he who hath ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, if he's willing to humble himself like a, a little child. And hopefully, you know, th- this person that you're trying to resolve the dispute with, hopefully they really are the one at fault. If not, it's you that needs to hear. But the point is, whoever is at fault needs to hear that there has been an offense given. And Jesus is saying here, as somebody injures you, you're worth standing up for. You are worth going to somebody and explaining how they've affected you. And if they're not safe to be with, then you're, you're never alone with that person again you set an increasing level of distance between you and the offending party until the point where he is, as, as Jesus says it, he's to you as a heathen man or a publican, somebody like an unbeliever. And Jesus is also talking to the disciples. He shall be to you, the disciples, as a heathen man and an unbeliever. And so that, then we have this apparent non sequitur. It makes a little more sense when he says that what you bind in on earth shall be bound in heaven, and what you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He used the same language when he was talking to Alma about uh, separating someone from the church. So he's talking here about excommunication. He's saying, if someone won't repent from a sin after being repeatedly admonished to do so, and they just keep offending and raising stumbling blocks for the little children of the church, then you can loose them from the church, and it will be loosed in heaven as well. This is, this is the topic of this, and, and, and he's saying to those who have received offense that you get to protect yourself. You get to set boundaries around being continually offended and continually uh, abused, for example. So now he, goes, now he goes a little more into forgiveness. So Peter comes, Jesus is often, or obviously he has talked, to, he's referred to sort of obliquely about forgiveness. So Peter comes to Jesus and said, Lord, now we're in verse 21. How oft shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? Um, this was a, a topic of a recent conference talk by Elder Robbins where he talks about how this teaching isn't about the math involved. 
that being said, we are going to go into the math and we're going to spend a fair amount of time on it, but there's a reason for it. Anyway, G- Peter says, till seven times. And Jesus says, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until 70 times seven. Then he begins this marvelous parable of the two servants, which we'll go into in a minute. But first we're going to talk about the seven versus 70 times seven. So Elder Robin's point was Jesus wasn't saying that after 490 times, then you can then you can stop forgiving someone. So I would add something important here. We're going to add a few things. But the first thing is, even Peter wasn't speaking literally. And as proof, there, there's sort of a companion uh, account of these teachings, and that's in Luke chapter 17. It's not part of today's lesson. But if you open up Luke 17, uh, Jesus says in verse 3, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. So this is sort of a compacted version of the teaching we've just gone over. You, you're allowed to go to somebody and say, hey, you've hurt me. You, you, you've trespassed against me. I don't like it. It's not fair. It doesn't work. Please change. And if he repents, forgive him. And do you notice the if here? We don't have this in Matthew. If he repent, forgive him. If he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Now here's another interesting thing. He's not necessarily repenting. He's saying he repents. He turns again to thee and says, I repent. In other words, his repentance might not be perfect. And whose is, right? But when somebody tries, then we are instructed by Christ to forgive. Now, so there are two teachings that we have to balance. One is that we are allowed to set distance between ourselves and those who are mistreating us. And the other is that we are to forgive as often as someone repents. Back to Matthew chapter 18. So here we are in verses 21 and 22. First of all, let's understand a little bit about the number seven. The Jews gave the number seven special significance. They had significance for all of the numbers. But seven was the number of days in the creation of the earth. And it's the number of, for that reason, it was the number of days in a week or the number of time periods in the creation of the earth. And so seven was a cyclical number. Like a wedding ring is a symbol of something that continues on forever. The, the number seven was a, a symbol of completeness. It meant that once it was finished, it would start again at one and keep going around and around forever. So seven meant completeness. So Peter was saying, the, the common teaching, you may not be aware of this, but the common teaching at the time was if somebody, you have to forgive somebody three times, and after that, it's sort of, you know, on your own judgment whether you're going to forgive them. One of G- Jesus's contemporary rabbis would have said three times is enough. And so Peter is already going over and above, and he isn't speaking literally saying, after seven times, can I stop forgiving? What he's saying is, do I have to forgive somebody every time they sin against me? Seven times, and in Luke we have that added uh, insight, seven times in a day, meaning as many times as somebody's going to sin against you and repent, if they really repent or you know, they seem sincere, then you, you are to forgive them. This, this idea of seven means as many times as it would happen. So Peter is already saying an infinite, literally, an infinite, a complete number of times, every time they sin against me, Lord, do I have to forgive them? Really? And Jesus then responds with something that takes it way out of bounds. He uses absolute hyperbole to answer the question. 
And the we're going to go into why he did this and what it means about his mercy and his love for each of us. So he says, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Now, if you start researching this, the first thing you'll run into is that I read, I read this verse in several different translations, and about half of them said 70 times 7, and about half of them said 77. So I want to bring that up because I, I didn't even know that before uh, this week preparing for this lesson. I didn't realize this was even a controversy. But the word used in the Greek version of the New Testament is 70 times 7, or 490. But the same word is used to translate a particular passage in Genesis chapter 4. Now, the same number appears one other place in the scriptures. And this is Genesis chapter 4, verse 24. I'll explain what's going on in that verse. But first, I'll talk about the numbers involved. So, the, in, in the Hebrew version of, of this chapter in Genesis, the number is 77. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament it was called the Septuagint. It, it, it existed, uh, it was very popular in the time of Jesus. And so in that version of this chapter, the number used is 70 times 7, or 490. So Hebrew, 77. Greek, 490. There's quite a difference there. But the symbolism, now all of the stuff we're going into, I'm doing it out of an academic interest, but all the stuff we're going into doesn't change the spiritual meaning of this. Jesus is saying, go way above and beyond. But I thought, it would, I thought it would be interesting to point out the difference here. So is Jesus, Jesus is quoting scripture when he's talking to Peter. He's quoting the scripture in Genesis saying, 70 times 7 or 77. The question is, is he quoting the Hebrew scriptures or is he quoting the Greek version of the Old Testament? And really, I would, I would say that depends on Peter. Which one would Peter have recognized more readily? My guess is that, that Jesus is actually quoting the Hebrew scriptures and saying 77, even though in our King James Version we have 70 times 7. What is the meaning of the, of the number 77. So 70 times 7 has a similar meaning to this, so whether or not this is exactly right doesn't matter a whole lot. But if the number 7 means completeness, then the number 10 means holiness and perfection. It's 7 taken to a new level. By the same token, the number 11 means pride. It's someone who's tried to reach 10, but they wanted to do God one better. It's kind of the idea that drove the construction of the Tower of Babel. It was that we can build something. We don't need God. We can build a tower that reaches to heaven and arrive there ourselves without God's help. And that's the pride that is symbolized by the number 11. So if you take the number 7, which is completeness and wholeness, and you multiply it by 11, which is the pride of not needing God, then you get the, this complete, absolute, and utter desertion of God. Now I'm going to tell you the story that exists in uh, Genesis chapter 4. So the first part of Genesis 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. And Cain kills Abel and is cursed by God. And God tells Cain, uh, Cain says, I'm going to be, everyone who finds me, I'm going to be killed. And God says, well, therefore, anyone who kills you, he'll be, he'll be revenged or vengeance will be taken sevenfold upon him. A lot of people interpret this verse as saying, I'm going to protect you, I, God, 
am going to pre- protect you, Cain. And anyone who slays you, uh, I'm going to put a mark on you. And anyone who sees that mark and then who slays you, I'm going to take vengeance upon him sevenfold. They know to stay away from you because it's my word that you not be troubled. But if you read carefully, God didn't say any of that. What God says here is, vengeance will be taken. And I think that's an interesting distinction. Um, So the question in my mind is, Cain is the first person to give himself utterly into this idea of the natural man. He wanted so much to have the possessions of his brother, he was willing to kill him for it. And so God says that, uh, that vengeance will occur if you're killed. But who would, be, who would be most likely to enact that vengeance than the people that Cain, the followers of Cain, the people he's taught? So if Cain is killed, then obviously the followers that, ha- that he's brought up, his children, his grandchildren, anyone who's willing to listen to him and believe in his teachings and follow in his ways, they're going to take this vengeance and it's going to be outsized vengeance. It's going to be complete vengeance. It can be number seven worth of vengeance, seven times. They're going to be many times more likely to come after you and your kids if you, they're going to kill seven people for one death if you kill Cain. So it seems more likely or at least possible or worth considering to me that what God is telling Cain is you're going to live the sort of life in which you have followers who are willing to take vengeance to another level. Well, after a few generations, we get a guy named Lamech. And Lamech is a descendant of Cain who comes in one day and tells his two wives, he said, I've killed a young man. And and you have to read this in another translation in order to understand exactly what's going on. Um, In in, uh, the King James Version, what he says is, I've slain a man to my wounding, a young man to my hurt. What this actually means is, a young man struck me or somebody wounded me or or hurt me or offended me in some way, and I took it to the next level and killed him. So I was willing to respond with a, a minor slight with a murderous rage. And then in verse 24, Lamech says, if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, 70 and sevenfold. So 77 times. In other words, my followers are so angry and it, we basically have this gang mentality, almost like one of, the, one of the cartels that you've heard about where they perpetrate such unholy acts of vengeance upon those who cross them. And, and they send a message to anyone who dares to thwart them in any way or talk about what they're doing. This is the idea that, that Lamech is the leader of one of these cartels of these secret societies that absolutely will take vengeance to another level, not just seven times, but we are going to take the number 11, the number of utter pride and not needing God in the world, and multiply it by seven, the idea of wholeness. And I'm, I'm going to see that my followers, if anyone comes after me for killing this young man, I'm going to see that my followers kill 77 of them. We're, we're going to be utterly unrestrained. We're going to be savage in our anger and in our wrath and in our vengeance. So that, this is the only other place in the scriptures that this number appears. Jesus is making an illusion. He's, he's making a scriptural reference to Peter when he says, I'm, I'm not telling you that you have to forgive seven times. What I'm saying is you have to forgive 77 times. You are to take the idea of forgiveness and you are to go absolutely beyond 
anything you've ever imagined could happen and you are to forgive that much. That's the idea. If you look at this, where this number comes from in the Old Testament, it's clear. And it's an idea I call savage forgiveness. It is utterly unexpected and it is unrestrained. It is as unrestrained, we are to be as unrestrained in our forgiveness as Lamech and his followers were in their wrath and in their rage and in their vengeance. That's the difference between the natural man of Lamech and of the Old Testament and of Cain and that King Benjamin speaks about and becoming a saint. That's why Jesus began his discourse on forgiveness by putting a little child there. He's saying we have to be so humble and willing to forgive that we're willing to do it in an utterly unrestrained way. Savage forgiveness. So then Jesus begins. He begins this wonderful parable and he talks about two servants. They both, neither of them can pay. One of them comes to the and it's not to be confused with the parable that's found in Luke chapter 7 where the same master forgives two servants different amounts. This is slightly different. One comes into him and he owes the, a certain king which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him which owed him 10,000 talents. Now, it's, it's worthwhile. You probably have had this same uh, same information spelled out to you if you've ever sat through this lesson before. But I'm going to do it again, and maybe a, something new will come to light. Let's, let's, get, let's wrap our heads around a little bit about what 10,000 talents meant. First of all, you'll remember talents from the parable of the, the men who were each given a different number of talents, and they had to improve upon them. A talent is not a unit of money in Roman reckoning. It's a unit of weight, and it's equal to 3,000 shekels of, of Jewish weight, which would put it around 75 pounds of our weight. And if it's not specified that it's a talent of gold, then if it's, if it's measuring money, a talent of money means a talent of silver. So 75 pounds of silver. So now we're starting to understand a little bit more about what uh, this, this servant owes the master. He owes his master... 10,000 times 75 pounds of silver. It's enough silver. Think of, think of uh, going to the store and picking up one of those bags of salt that is outside the store. They each weigh 40 pounds. So you pick up one of those in each hand if you've ever carried those out to the car. That's about what a talent feels like. Imagine filling those two bags up with pennies. And those pennies are made out of silver, you know, little or, or nickel, silver nickels from the 1960s. They used, nickels used to be made out of pure silver. If you could fill up two of those 40-pound bags full of those silver nickels and carry them out to your car and put them in your house, you would have, you would have brought home one talent of silver. If you, wanted to, if you wanted to bring home 10,000 of them, you would need a modest-sized apartment, and you would fill every room in that apartment from floor to ceiling. It's the size of a, a national treasury of Jesus' day. It is more wealth, of guaranteed it is more wealth than the entire nation of Israel, and all of the tetrarchs, if they pooled their wealth, it's more than they had. Uh, incidentally, there's a, there's a legend about Tiberius, the Roman emperor, amassing this hoard of 675 million denarii. And it, the difference between a denarii and a talent was that a denarii was a single coin, and it was the payment, roughly the payment of a Roman soldier for a day's work. So a, a Roman soldier was paid a little over 200, 225 denarii per year. And 
So, uh, in fact, a Roman soldier would work a little longer than a day for a, for a denarius. And this is a tiny little chip of silver. And it's about 6,000 of these little chips of silver would make up one talent. So if you were, you're filling up these, these salt bags, you've emptied the salt out, you're putting these little chips of silver in there, it would take you over 20 years, if you were a Roman soldier, let alone a Jewish laborer, it would take you over 20 years to fill up these bags and have a talent. And that's if you're not spending any money on anything for yourself. So one talent is 20 years labor. 10,000 talents is 200,000 years of labor. That's, that's the scale of this servant's debt. That, that's just so you understand. And that's if he's a Roman soldier and he never spends any of the money. If he's a common Jewish laborer and he has to live at the same time, this is millions of years worth of wealth, of one person's wealth. In other words, it's a debt that is so impossible to be repaid, we're no longer talking about a temporal debt. Normally, money is a temporal subject. You know, in order to buy a new car, I might have to make a sacrifice in not eating at restaurants for a few weeks or a few months, or, you know, I'm, I'm, every, every budgetary decision is a sacrifice by definition. And so that's what, that's what a temporal matter is. Most debts are temporal matters, but this debt is now moved into the eternal realm. This person is going to lose his freedom and that of his family forever. It's an eternal question. This, this debt is now beyond temporal into spiritual. And what the master does, he forgives this servant the debt. The servant begs for mercy, and the master is so merciful. Now imagine how merciful you have to be to forgive the debt one-tenth. So um, I didn't go back to the Tiberius thing, but th- this treasure, this, this hoard that Jesus is talking about of silver is one-tenth of the size of the entire national treasury of Rome. That's the, that's the amount of debt that this master is willing to forgive his servant. And so Peter would have been fully aware. His eyes probably went really wide when he understood the, the depth of this master's forgiveness. And so then what does this, this servant do? He's forgiven of this terrible, huge debt that goes beyond the normal realm. It goes into the spiritual realm. And he goes out and he tries to collect his own debts to try to make good on some of it, or, or maybe just to because he's feeling insecure about his finances. And he finds another servant. And this servant owes him 100 pence or 100 denarii, which is the, the little silver coin I was talking about, this day's wage for a Roman soldier. If you were to translate that into modern terms, it, it might be somewhere around a few hundred dollars up to $10,000. It, it was probably about four months worth of wages for uh, somebody like that. So if you're working on minimum wage, then that's, then that's four months worth of wages. It's a fair amount of money. It's not something you just want to forget about. And it means a lot to this man who's just been brought to terms with not only his own uh, indebtedness, but his own mortality. And he wants to have this amount of money. It's enough that he's not willing to just let it go. So it hurts. It hurts to give it up. That's the point. That's why we're talking about these amounts. Uh, him, to him give up 100 pence is a big deal. But nevertheless, uh, the person begs for mercy, and he says, no, I'm not going to give you any mercy. You're, you're going to be delivered into prison, which will give me the right to sell all of your possessions and, and get a slave price for you, etc. And 
Then, obviously, the master finds out what has happened. All the fellow servants are scandalized that this would happen. And the master says, I was kind to you, and then you were cruel to another. Shouldn't you have been as merciful to another as I was to you? And Jesus sums up the teaching by saying this in verse 35. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts forgive not everyone his brother their trespasses. So the the charge has gone out. We have to forgive each other. And there was an important if in the uh, Luke in Luke's version of this teaching, which is if if they come to you and they're penitent, right? So how do we reconcile this with the teaching in the Doctrine and Covenants, which says that upon us it is it is we're beholden to forgive. God is going to forgive whom He will forgive. But upon us it is required to forgive all men, and if we don't forgive, it remains in us the greater sin. And obviously, then the we start f- thinking about okay, every you know these sins that come upon us every day, these everyday offenses. Yeah, that can be hard, but we have to do it. And then obviously the people in their minds they take this to the extreme case. What if somebody has abused me? What if somebody, let's say that I, I spent my life savings building up a business and somebody embezzled all of it? and took everything, and and I lost everything, and I was destitute out on the street. How do I forgive somebody like that who ruined my life? So the point of this parable is to, is to discuss exactly that question, and the, the question doesn't go unanswered in this parable. The, the, the hundred pence that one servant owes to another, it actually hurts to give up. It really hurts, but the point of the parable is that the, the debt we owe to God, and I might add, incidentally, the debt that this fellow servant owes to me is nothing compared to his debt to God. So somebody sinning against me, just as King Benjamin said, that when we uh, are in the service of our fellow beings, we're only in the service of our God. When we're committing sins and offending our, cello, our fellow beings, we're only offending God. In other words, the, the debt we're incurring towards our Heavenly Father is so much greater than the debt we incur towards each other that what God is saying here is it's a small, financially, if we were to put it in financial terms, it's a small matter. You have to let it go. Does that make it easy? In the case of extreme injury, of course it's not easy. It's the hardest thing we have to do. And to understand how hard it is, just look at this amount that that Jesus has talked about. That it it is an amount that would boggle the imagination of any person of his time to, to even imagine, except for Tiberius, who assembled this much, right? It, it would have absolutely bankrupted any country around Jesus on earth, other than Rome itself. So, yes, if we have a great amount to forgive, now here's, here's the point it, from the way I see it. The greater the amount we have to forgive, the more like the master in this parable we become. The more we have to forgive, the more someone has injured us, then when we reach that mountaintop, you might say, of forgiveness, and we, and we look down and we say, okay, I'm, I'm willing to let this go, then the more we're like Christ, who forgave this, this amount, this bankrupting amount. And this, this is what Jesus is saying when he's making the distinction between the natural man and the spiritual man, the saint, the child, 
and the Lamech. He's, it, it's a perfect illustration of what King Benjamin was teaching, that he wants us to be so unrestrained in our forgiveness, and this is what is going to bring us closer to him. This is what's going to make us like him. We are, in fact, the, the measure of how like Christ we are is the measure of the kind of things that we're able to forgive. Are we able to forgive $6 billion? That would be, a, that would be one estimate of what this 10,000 talents is worth. Are we able to forgive $6 billion worth? Or are we only able to forgive $10,000 worth? Or are we able to forgive nothing at all? Well, in that measure is how close we are to becoming like our Savior. Jesus continues this, you might think that these two parables, uh, now we're, we're going to move over to Luke chapter 10. You might think that these two parables are unrelated. The parable of the two servants and then the parable of the good Samaritan. But given this perspective of the natural versus the spiritual man, and especially the question that prompts the teaching of the parable of the good Samaritan, we see that they actually are quite related. Uh, in fact, it was brilliant to put them together, even because the events in them don't seem to be related. But um, Luke chapter 10 begins with Jesus sending forth the 70, and they go out. It's similar to the, to the sending out of the 12. They go out, they're, they're given the same charges, and when they come back, then they, then they say, uh, in verse 17, they say, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And Jesus talks about how blessed they are to be able to see the wonders that they're seeing, how many prophets of the Old Testament time there were who wished they could have seen the Savior's day and couldn't. Uh, it's a wonderful story. And perhaps as he's greeting them, or perhaps at another time, it says a certain lawyer stood up. And a lawyer is not somebody who is suing and, and defending people in lawsuits. A lawyer is somebody who, who is interpreting the law. And another word for law is Torah. So this is a religious scholar, somebody who interprets the Talmud also, that this body of uh, lore that has attached itself to Jewish tradition. And so he, these, these are the people, Pharisees, who have the biggest problem with Jesus because he's attacking their traditions that have almost gained the stature of law. So a lawyer st stands up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus, and this is the, the, where we get the title for our lesson, What Shall I Do to Inherit Eternal Life? And Jesus says, well, what do you think? And the man says, well, uh, and maybe he's been listening to Jesus because this is one of Jesus' earlier teachings because Jesus gave these two great commandments. And the man says, well, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And Jesus says, thou hast answered, answered right, this do and thou shalt live. But he, now we're in verse 29 of Luke chapter 10, but he, being willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So Jesus tells him how to gain eternal life. He's answered the question, which is rare. Jesus usually gets asked a question, and then he answers a different one. And we're about to see that again. But this time, he just answered the question. He said, Well, what do you think? The man answered the question. He says, You're right. You already knew how to do it. If you do that, you will live. In other words, you will have eternal life. But then the man goes one step farther, and he wants to justify himself. He says, Okay. Let's put limits on this. Who is my neighbor? Who do I have to actually love as myself? Now, I want to go back to uh, one of the points we made earlier when talking about Matthew 18. And Jesus talked about how um, 
if anyone, there's a reason that I brought this up because um, if anyone were to cause one of these little children to stumble, then it'd be better to have a millstone about your neck and be drowned. And I wanted, there's a reason that I brought up the idea that we should put ourselves in that scenario because here, this, this often happens in this verse as well. We, sh- we need to love our neighbor as ourself. Well, it's not, it's kind of a dirty trick to love your neighbor as yourself if you hate yourself. Then you're treating your neighbor rotten, right? This is, this is actually an idea that's getting a lot of play these days on social media and elsewhere, that we have to love ourselves. And it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing, as long as we take that in the right context. It doesn't mean that we prioritize ourselves above other people that we take ourselves and and compare ourselves with other people and we find that we compare favorably. It doesn't mean any of those things. What it means is that we treat ourselves spiritually the way that Jesus is saying he wants us to treat others. Jesus is saying, "I I love my heavenly father's children so much that I'm willing to leave the 99 and rejoice over that one lost soul that I find. And when we love ourselves, we're willing to see ourselves in that one lost soul that was found rather than the one lost soul that was never found. I think if we, if we recognize that um, the, the atonement in this parable of the two servants, if we recognize it's a choice, this parable outlines a choice for us in what kind of a, an atonement do we want to believe in? Do we believe in an atonement that in, in which we can be forgiven of $6 billion worth of sins If we do, then we also have to admit our neighbor's right to be forgiven of $6 billion worth of sins and not hold each person accountable for their $10,000 faults. That's the point of that parable, is that we are are being asked to define the atonement in our own minds. How much forgiveness do we really want God to have? Do we want him to have savage forgiveness? Do we want it to be so unrestrained that it would forgive even us? And Jesus is saying, you determine what you want the atonement to look like by how you treat your fellow man. And here's the good part. So many of us have a hard time forgiving ourselves. That's the hardest person to forgive. We, you know, Some people have a hard time, probably a lot of people have a hard time forgiving others, but we also have a tough time forgiving ourselves and saying, man, I've, I've made so many mistakes and I've I've deviated from God's path in so many ways that I can't ever see that God really would come after me like he does after that one sheep. And after we read this parable, we realize, okay, if I'm willing to see the atonement as the kind of atonement where this person, even this terrible person who did this horrible thing to me, even that person can be forgiven. If I'm willing to forgive that, then God has told me he'll forgive the terrible sins that I know he can lay at my door. This is not only a way, this is not only our duty to forgive other people, it's also a way for us to actually believe that God will forgive us. If we'll do the work of forgiving other people, we are convincing ourselves with every step we take, every every sin forgiven. And remember, forgiven doesn't mean we just ignore it. We go to them and we explain what how they've affected us, and then they hopefully hear us, and then we forgive. Or we distance ourselves from them, and then we forgive. In either case, with every step we take, every bit of work we do in forgiving, 
We're convincing ourselves of the power of the atonement. And then when we need it in our own lives, there it is. We've taught ourselves to believe in the kind of atonement that can forgive a $6 billion debt when there's $10,000 worth of accounts laid at the door. And so that's, that's what's happening here, as Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 10, love thy neighbor as thyself. Love thy neighbor. First, you have to love yourself enough that you're willing to forgive other people. You're willing to set boundaries around the way other people will treat you. And you're willing to value yourself enough to believe that Christ will come after you. And if you love yourself that much, then love other people that much as well. So then, then he illustrates that. When, when the question comes, who is my neighbor? He answers this question with the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is a man falls among thieves, he's wounded, he's on the side of the road, and he's going to die. He's, he's so injured, he's going to die. He's close to death. A priest comes by, walks on the other side of the road. A Levite comes by, walks on the other side of the road. Now, the people hearing this would have considered that the person who's been robbed is a Jew. And so these holy men in this person's own tradition, they walk on the other side of the road. And you may have heard this interpretation, but for them to touch this wounded person would have rendered them ritually impure. Maybe this was a dead body already. But in any case, he was covered in blood. If they touch blood or a dead body, then they're, they're rendered ritually impure. And they're, they're headed up. He's going from Jerusalem to Jericho. They're headed from Jericho to Jerusalem. They're going to the temple to serve in the temple. It's their time. When they get there, they don't have a week to be purified ritually. They have to get there and be ready to work in the temple. So it is a good motive that prompts these two holy, quote-unquote, holy men to walk on the other side of the street and to leave that wounded person there. And then comes a Samaritan. Now, if you if you remember um, our lesson in, in the Old Testament year when we talked about the origin of the Samaritans, when the Jews returned from Persia to rebuild the temple as from being slaves, the Samaritans were the descendants of the northern kingdom where the Assyrians had carried away almost all of the inhabitants of the land and they had brought in these uh, people from other lands that they'd also conquered and they'd forced them to settle in the northern kingdom of Israel. And then they had inter- intermixed and they had changed a little bit. The, the remainder had tried to convert them to the worship of Yahweh and they changed Judaism to the point where it was sort of the same and sort of different. They were considered apostates by most faithful Jews. And because their capital was Samaria, they were called Samaritans. And when the Jews returned from Persia to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans said, can we help because we also believe in Yahweh? And the Jews said, no, you can't help us because you're apostates and what you believe is wrong. Now, if you read about this in the, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, then you, you'll realize they could have handled it a little bit better. But this was the start of a, of a centuries-long feud, religious feud, and a bitter division among these two people. And the Samaritans considered that the Jews had horribly mistreated them. And so, the, and Jesus chooses very specifically and purposefully the Samaritan as being his main character in this parable because he's able to overlook and forgive the injured person lying on the side of the road. And unlike either of the people from within his own tradition are willing to do, the Samaritan finds it in his heart to pick him up, take him to an inn, spend his own money on his care, and basically bring him back from the dead. So he takes this, he takes this spiritual 
this this eternal consequence and he renders it temporal so that there's a contrast in all of these parables there's a contrast between the natural man and the spiritual man the the master forgives this huge 6 billion dollar debt he takes something that was eternal and he renders it merely temporal he mem- he re- renders it manageable and then what does that servant do he goes and he takes what should have been a normal temporal debt something that could be handled between friends and he makes it a matter of freedom for him and his family and he takes it and renders it eternal which is the exact opposite of what the master had done so he acts like the natural man he does what the natural man would do it doesn't require any effort to react in anger and to get what's mine and to take vengeance what takes effort and what takes resistance and what is what comes unnaturally is to forgive and to change when when lehi talked to his children and said i want you to act and not be acted upon he was trying to reach the same idea which was we have to resist these natural impulses that's being acted upon and instead when offenses come we do what's unnatural which is we find this totally unbridled level of forgiveness within us and we're able to reach a a level where God before only God would be willing to be which was in a place of utter forgiveness so this this Samaritan this foreigner this outsider this apostate is willing to forgive what this person has done and take him and, and provide for him. And then he says to the innkeeper, take care of him when I come back. If you spend it, if you have to spend anything else, I'll cover that too. And so then the, Jesus comes back with the question. Now notice the question was, who's my neighbor? And Jesus comes back and says, which, which of these people was the neighbor to the one on the ground? And this lawyer is forced to answer, well, the one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. Now the point is not, um, here, here is a, a list of the people that you have to treat as neighbors. What Jesus does is cleverly say, all right, what your job is never going to be done. There's an infinite number of people, not infinite, but there is a huge number of people in the world who are going to be suffering. Your job is to slowly increase that number of, that, that, the size of that circle of people that you would consider to be your neighbor to the point where you would serve them. And each time you think you're done, each time you, you get to where that's manageable and you can serve those people, then you'll be invited to increase the size of that circle until eventually it fills the whole world, until this $10,000 debt that you have to deal with becomes the $6 billion debt that I as God have to deal with with each person, and you'll be able to manage each of them. As you become more like me, you will increase the size of the circle that includes all of your neighbors, and you will begin to see more and more people as your neighbors, till the point where you don't even, they don't even have to be Jewish, they don't have to be from your country, they could be anyone, they could be a foreigner, they could be somebody who's injured you, and you'd be willing to forgive and give everything you have for them. This is unrestrained forgiveness, this is the natural versus the spiritual man, this is Jesus saying, if you want to become like me, then here's how savagely and and uncontrollably you will learn to forgive and if you will do so and the more you have to forgive and the more you love yourself the more you're able to love others if you will do so then you will know what it means to become like me and to partake of my love in return now this lesson is brought home with the the short account of mary and martha and i can't think of a more appropriate way to end this lesson than to talk about this brief account of Mary and Martha. And uh, these are two friends of Jesus. He's in their home, 
And Martha is caring for the home. She is doing those things that are necessary for the, whatever the event is. Jesus being in their home is probably the event. And he's teaching a spiritual lesson as he always is. And Martha is caring for all the mess that people are leaving behind. Perhaps she's serving food and bringing drinks to everyone and making sure everyone is comfortable. Such an important thing to be doing. And yet, and Mary, what is Mary doing? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, just drinking in every word. And so as important, and, and, and Martha feels slighted. She feels like, hey, it was Mary's job to help me out. This is our house. And uh, if, if our hospitality is not up to par, then it reflects on both of us. Why can't, you know, Lord, why can't she help me? And Jesus' response is so wonderful. He says, look, you are careful and troubled with many things. And, and, he, and he doesn't say, you're, you know, what you're worrying about is unimportant. Just like Jesus doesn't say this $10,000 debt is unimportant, this hundred pence. He doesn't say it's unimportant. He said, you could have showed mercy. And to Martha, he says, you're troubled about many things. But one thing lackest thou, and Mary has chosen that better part, which shall not be taken away from her. So what Jesus is saying is there are important and earthly considerations that come upon us. But if we want to live in the world in, the, in a sort of existence where we act and are not acted upon, then we have to choose to put off the natural man because the natural man is the man that is acted upon. And the only way to do that is to make unnatural choices, choices like forgiving, choices like taking those things that maybe eternal, have eternal stumbling blocks for other people and rendering them into manageable obstacles for them to overcome, loving ourselves and then loving others, and then doing as Mary did and being willing when the time comes to set aside our earthly concerns and listen at the feet of Jesus. As we do, he gently reaches out and gathers each of us and lays us upon his shoulders and carries us back to the fold. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This has been Gospel Doctrine, a nonprofit podcast hosted and produced by Mark Holt with bumper music by Kendra Lowe. Gospel Doctrine is not affiliated with nor endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.